0: The last line of the Nicene Creed says, I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Why is it that we Christians look forward to the final judgment? And if we don't, why don't we?
1: the Catholic Podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, Chloe Langer, and I'm joined by my regular co-host, Joe Heschmeyer of Holy Family School of Faith and Shameless Popery. Welcome to the show, Joe.
0: Thank you very much, Chloe.
1: So we're in part two of our Advent series. Last week we kicked it off with kind of a downer of a subject and talked about death. Today we're going to be talking about judgment, both the final judgment and our particular judgment. But why is it important to focus on judgment during Advent?
0: So there's a great line uh, by Father Alfred Delp where he says, here is the message of Advent. Face with him who is the last, the world will begin to shake. Now, he's writing in the context of World War II. He was part of the resistance. He is captured by the Nazis, and he's executed. And he was a priest who focused a lot on why there is this kind of suffering and tumult and chaos in Germany at the time. You know, why are Christians allowed to live under the Nazi rule, and why is everything going so badly? And also focused a lot on Advent, on preparation for the coming of Christ. And he viewed his own life through this lens. So he has a whole series of Advent meditations and reflections, which I'd recommend very highly. as good spiritual reading in this season. But I want to share a little bit excerpts from one of his homilies on this. He said, we may ask why God sends whirlwinds over the earth, why the chaos where all appears hopeless and dark, and why there seems to be no end to human suffering. Perhaps it is because we've been living on earth in an utterly false and counterfeit security. And now God strikes the earth till it resounds. Now he shakes and scatters, not to pound us with fear, but to teach us one thing, the spirit's innermost longing. So then he talks about this false confidence, which he calls a delusional security, a spiritual insanity in which we really believe we can bring the stars down from heaven and kindle flames of eternity in the world. And he goes on from there. He says, if we want Advent to transform us, our homes and hearts and even nations, then the great question for us is whether we will come out of the convulsions of our time with this determination. Yes, arise. It is time to awaken from sleep. Awaking up must begin somewhere. We need people who are moved by the horrific calamities and emerge from them with the knowledge that those who look to the Lord will be preserved by him, even if they are hounded from the earth. The Advent message comes out of our encounter with God, with the gospel. It is thus the message that shakes, so that in the end the entire world shall be shaken. The fact that the Son of Man shall come again is more than a historic prophecy. It is also a decree that God's coming and the shaking up of humanity are somehow connected. If we are inwardly inert, incapable of being genuinely moved, if we become obstinate and hard and superficial and cheap, then God himself will intervene in world events. He will teach us what it means to be placed in turmoil and to be inwardly stirred. In how many ways have we become indifferent and used things that ought not to be? Being shocked, however, out of our complacency is only part of Advent, There is much more that belongs to it. Advent is blessed with God's promises, which constitute the hidden happiness of this time. These promises kindle the light in our hearts. Being shattered, being awakened, these are necessary for Advent. In the bitterness of awakening, in the helplessness of coming to, in the wretchedness of realizing our limitations, the golden threads that pass between heaven and earth reach us. These threads give the world a taste of the abundance it can have. I know it's a really long quotation, but there's a reason I shared so much of that meditation. I think it really gets to the heart of Advent. He was living in a, a tumultuous, chaotic, and frightening time. And I think in many ways, many of the listeners would say, and so are we. And so his message is, God seemingly is permitting this to wake us up, to shake us out of complacency. And more than that, to show us that life could be so much richer, that something greater could happen. And so all of this is very much tied with the message of his coming. His coming at Christmas, and his coming again in glory. And so judgment really does form a, a crucial part of this. We'll talk in a little bit about the, the three comings of Christ. We might say in history, in mystery, in majesty. In history at Christmas, in mystery in the sacraments and in our hearts now and in majesty at the end of the world. But that's the message. If we focus on the coming of Christ, it'll transform our entire lives. It'll prepare us to encounter him at the end of our lives if we've encountered him every day during our lives.
1: So when we talk about judgments, usually there's an emphasis in the difference on the particular judgment and the final judgment. So the particular judgment is when you die, when you behold Christ and he converses with you about your actions, and then you have the final judgment as well, which is when all of us um, will be judged after the final coming of Christ. So then there comes the question, which is actually a question surrounded by a lot of controversy, which is that what happens to people who die before the last judgment, before the second coming of Christ?
0: Yeah, so that's a really good question. This is one that a lot of people have been very confused by. So Scripture speaks of two judgments. Hebrews nine twenty seven to twenty eight says. And just as it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So that death and judgment, that's what we call the particular judgment. When you die, you're judged. But also, Christ is coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead. That there will be a universal judgment or a general judgment. And the church is very clear about those two things. And we hold, as a matter of faith, this is what scripture is teaching, that there are two judgments, particular and general. And the question of what happens in between those two was the source of some confusion and controversy. Martin Luther uh, is one of many who taught what's sometimes called soul sleep. He claimed that souls entered, quote, a deep, strong, sweet sleep, end quote, with the grave serving as a soft couch of ease or rest until Christ's return in glory. So there are passages that speak about, you know, rest in peace, that sort of thing. But that rest in peace doesn't mean a loss of consciousness. It's talking about entering the Sabbath rest of God. And so this was a controversy on the Catholic side about two centuries prior to the Reformation. Um, between 1331 and 1332, Pope John twenty second scandalized the faithful. Because he talked about the souls of the faithful departed, uh, being in some sort of state of glory, but not having the full, we would say, beatific vision, the full vision and knowledge of God in his essence. And so he thought, well, you get something, but not everything, before the final judgment. And the theologians in the church quickly pushed back and said, no, that's that's not right. The University of Paris was the kind of premier theological school at the time, and they quickly said, that's, that's incorrect, so the Pope made it very clear. He had just been sort of speculating that this was not some new teaching of the church, anything like that. He wasn't intending to contradict church teaching. And so on December 3rd of 1334, in a papal bull ne superhis, he basically recants his earlier position. And the next day he dies. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so it was a good ending to his life. Sure, He clarified the ambiguities. And then the next Pope... Uh, officially teaches in Benedictus Deus, this is Pope Benedict XII. Uh, he says very clearly that the faithful departed, after purgatory if necessary, quote, have seen and see the divine essence with an intuitive vision and even face to face without the mediation of any creature by way of object of vision, end quote. In other words, When we talk about the beatific vision, that the saints in glory really get to see God directly, experientially. When we say see, I mean, it's some sort of intellectual apprehension of God. But not mediated through words, not mediated through uh, the witness of someone else. Some direct experience of God in his essence. That's totally transformative and makes us like God. That's what scripture promises. When we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. That's the promise. And the Pope's saying, yes, this is what happens when the just die. And that's also, that's the message of Scripture. Uh, Luke 16, when Jesus talked to the rich man and Lazarus, he shows the rich man as being, quote, in anguish in this flame, end quote. And Lazarus is comforted in the bosom of Abraham. Yet all of that's before the second coming. And so very clearly, they're not just unconscious awaiting Mm -hmm. um, you know the final judgment this is this matters because it means you can pray to saints this matters because it means that uh, the souls aren't just suspended somewhere unaware of of reality that they don't just blink out of existence to come back at the last judgment there's nothing like that so i think it's an important thing um, to bear in mind but i'd also say that it's important to Uh, keep this notion of the last judgment in mind for all of us. So Pope John Paul II, uh, in his 1984 exhortation on reconciliation and penance, says that the church can't omit, without serious mutilation of her essential message, a constant catechesis on what the traditional Christian language calls the four last things of man, death, judgment, universal and particular, hell and heaven. In a culture which tends to imprison man in the earthly life, at which he is more or less successful, the pastors of the church are asked to provide a catechesis which will reveal and illustrate with the certainties of faith what comes after the present life, beyond the mysterious gates of death, an eternity of joy and communion with God, or the punishment of separation from him. Only in this eschatological vision can one realize the exact nature of sin and feel decisively moved to penance and reconciliation. In other words, we don't really get sin. We don't really understand it as more than just, you know, a bad habit or a taboo or a a social disorder until we really consider its eternal consequences. So that's why it's important to know, you know, the particular judgment is real. At the moment of your death, if you die in mortal sin, you go directly to hell. You don't pass go. That's a scary thought, but you need to live your life with the recognition that you're going to be judged at your death. Mike Sheerslick, our founder here at School of Faith, uh, said something recently in a rosary meditation. He said, there are people out there who will spend eternity in heaven or in hell based on what you do or don't do. The only thing I want to add to that is that one way or the other, you're probably going to end up with them. If through your actions, you've brought a lot of people to Christ, you'll probably share in heavenly glory. <laughs> If through your inaction, your apathy, your fear, whatever it is, you've neglected the ones you allegedly love and allowed them to slip into hell, you're probably going to be joining them.
1: Yeah, like this is something that has huge ramifications. I love JP2 as the quote constant catechesis. Like this is something that we constantly have to think about. This isn't just something that we think about in Advent or in this series of the podcast. This is something that you should be thinking about on a regular daily basis. in and, reflection.
0: Yeah. And he highlights that the church's pastors really need to be doing this. Mm-hmm. So priests who are listening, the Pope's instructions are very clear here. I think sometimes priests are afraid of preaching on topics like hell because it's not very pleasant. It doesn't seem very positive, very uplifting. But if we neglect to talk about hell, it would be like a doctor who is afraid of talking about cancer because it's not good news. Well, you need to know if you have a fatal disease, especially an easily treatable one. And a doctor who didn't talk about that would be failing in his basic duties.
1: So we've talked about when we'll be judged, with a special emphasis here on the particular judgment. But what are we going to be judged on? So this is another topic that has a little bit of a controversy about it. Some people have misconceptions that St. Paul says that we'll be judged on faith alone. And St. James teaches that we'll be judged on faith plus works. And Catholics and Protestants don't really seem to agree on what Jesus himself teaches. So what are we going to be judged
0: on? So there's a sense in which we very clearly will be judged on faith, where we will be saved by faith. So Ephesians 2, in verses 8 to 10, St. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not because of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you'll notice Paul is saying you're saved through faith, and yet works clearly are part of what you're being called Mm -hmm. to through faith. This is an important but subtle distinction. We don't earn faith, we're not just basically good people and therefore get saved or therefore get faith. Nothing like that. Rather, this encounter with the living God transforms us and allows us to live in him and love as he loves, which is how good works are possible. And so when we look at how scripture presents the last judgment, works, good works play a huge role. There's no escaping this stress put on good works. On the other hand, there's no escaping that there's a critical role of faith. So let's talk about faith, and then we'll talk about works. Just looking at what Jesus says here first. In the end of Luke 7, uh, this is Jesus is in the house of Simon, and there's a penitent woman who washes his feet with her tears. And and he says uh, to Simon, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he says to her, your sins are forgiven. So the ones who are with him at table begin to say, who is this? We even forgive sins. And he says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now notice the kind of faith that it is. It's a faith that gives her the boldness to go in front of people who are going to judge her and act in a socially unacceptable way for Christ. To be able to proclaim Christ in this controversial, radical um, socially uncomfortable and unacceptable way in the public square. It's that kind of a faith. It's a faith that works. It's a, mm-hmm. it's an active faith. It's not just she quietly believed in her room and then said, well, I don't want to make anyone uncomfortable, so I won't say anything in public. No, the faith that saved her is, a, is an active working faith. So he talks about faith there, but he talks only about works, interestingly, when he describes the last judgment. So in Matthew 25... He describes how he's going to come again in glory with the angels with him. He'll be seated on his throne. Before him will be gathered all nations, and they'll separate them. He says as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He places the sheep at his right and the goats at his left. But listen to what he says and the basis on which Jesus says he's going to make the judgment. He says to those on his right, Come, O blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Now, of course, the ones on his right are saying, "Lord, when did we see you? Like, when did we encounter you in this way?" And he says to them, "Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me." And then to the goats. He says the reverse. He says, you didn't do these things. What you didn't do to the least of these, you did not do to me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That's the promise, Mm -hmm. right? So you can't just say, I have faith alone, so I don't need to do these good works. I don't need to do these good actions. Because if you don't do them, you are not serving Christ. So we can get into the theological debates about faith and works, But if you are not living a life of good works, you're not going to go to heaven, says Jesus. And there's this idea that St. Paul disagrees with him. But I think the people who claim this are incorrect. (laughs) I think if you look at the second chapter of Romans, St. Paul is very clear about the same thing. And verses 6 to 11, really the first 11 verses of the chapter, he goes into this. But in verse 6, he says, For he will render to every man according to his works... To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are factious and do not obey the truth, but obey wickedness, there will be wrath and fury. Then he talks about how there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. So that's very clear that good works are going to play a critical role in our judgment. But this is a way of obeying the truth, which means acting on what you know to be true through faith. So faith is still there, but it's through faith that you can obey the truth. Uh, Another way to approach it, honestly, instead of getting caught up in faith versus works, etc., is to say that love transforms, love of God and love of neighbor. And then if you have this love, this transformative love, then you'll be saved. And if you don't, then you won't be. So John, I think, does a very good job of making this very clear throughout his writings. In 1 John 3, uh, verses 14 to 15, uh, he says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That's very clear. If you say you have faith, but you don't love your neighbor... You're like a murderer. And you cannot be saved. That's a shocking, scary, kind of terrifying message. But this is the message of the basis of judgment. And St. Paul agrees with this. In 1 Corinthians 13, he says, If I have faith so as to move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. He doesn't say, if I have faith to move mountains but have not love, that's fine because I'm saved through faith alone. No, he says, I'm nothing. So he talks about how you can have all these things. You can have... Uh, The gift of speaking in tongues but not love and then you're just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You can give away everything you have and deliver your body to be burned, but if you don't have love, you gain nothing. So good actions, like allowing yourself to be martyred, giving away everything you have, they're worthless without love. Faith is worthless without love. So faith and works, without love, neither of those are of any good.
1: And love, too, requires action when you think about Advent. Like, I always think about Hallmark movies. And they have this false um, sense of what love is. Like, love is the butterfly feeling that you get when you're in a Hallmark movie and you fall in love with a guy who owns the Christmas tree farm. And
0: (laughs) And that's just not
1: true. And it's not reality because the reality is that love is a decision. It's something that requires action. You know, both of us are married. If we said that we loved our spouse but never did anything for them, what kind of love would that be? It would be a love that's dead. It's something that's not that's not bearing fruit. There's no action there. And so I love how this is tied in with the true definition of love, with that requires the willing of the good of the other. In this case, our relationship with the Lord, but that also applies to our relationships with other people.
0: Absolutely. And so John, I mentioned 1 John 3. He goes on from there and says... But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in deed and in truth. So you're saying the exact same thing you just said, Chloe. That if you say you love someone but do nothing, you don't really seem to love them at all. Mm -hmm. So love has to be expressed through deeds and in truth. And so this also ties in with what John shows Jesus saying in the gospel. So John 14, Jesus says in verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And then in verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So it's that kind of love. It's a love that keeps the commandments of God, which are of course, love God and love neighbor. And then the next chapter in Fifteen ten, he says if you keep my commandments you will abide in my love just as i've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love and well, then the second letter of john he says in verses five to six now i beg you lady he's writing to the church not as though i were writing you a new commandment but the one we have had from the beginning that we love one another and this is love that we follow his commandments this is the commandment as you've heard from the beginning that you follow love So we can really reduce the entire Christian message to follow love. Mm -hmm. Follow the love of God. Grow every day in that love of God through prayer. Follow love of neighbor. Act in the good of the other. Put the other before yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you live this out, you'll go to heaven. And if you don't, you'll go to hell. That's That's kind of the message of the Last Judgment. Mm -hmm. And so this whole debate between Catholics and Protestants on faith and works runs the risk of just totally missing the mark because it never talks about love, because it never talks about the need to live in the love of God and to live out that love by loving him and by loving neighbor.
1: And we see this in John's life. It's himself, too, away from his writings. You'll hear stories of how he would come up to preach and say, little children, let us love one another. And then walk away. And people would, you know, understandably be frustrated. Like, all right, we heard it. We've heard it. But that's the point. Like, it is that simple. That's really what we're called to live out.
0: Yeah, I think we want um, a tougher message. (laughs) We want something more complicated. We want something more esoteric. We want something that, you know, some really like, whoa, that's a radical. I never would have known. Mm -hmm. But it's so basic and yet we don't do it, right? Like It's so basic. Love God, love neighbor. And so often we fall short of that. So everything else is really just, like the rest of the commandments of God are just teaching us how to love him better and how to love neighbor better. Because God knows that if he just gives us the command, love one another, we're just going to screw it up. Yep.
1: (laughs) So we have to understand love in the light of of the importance of love in our eternal um, destination, but we also have to understand judgment in a new way. I think too often when we think of judgment, we think of like the typical courtroom scene where we come in and mm-hmm. God is sitting up on his judge's seat and looming in front of us and gosh dang it, like we tried, but we didn't make it. And so, sorry, you didn't do enough and we're sent off to hell. And that can be horrifying. And it's no wonder that people are scared of death or are scared of the judgment as a whole. But if we realize it in this light of how God has the judgment um, as a reflection of our own free choices. So like a better way of understanding it is the judgment. Isn't this final decision that you have to make where it's this big question, like God asking, do you want to spend eternity with me or do you want to spend eternity without me? And then we have that decision, but instead it's this culmination of decisions that we've made all throughout our life. So if we've made daily choices, daily hard choices with love and saying, all right, Lord, like this is hard, but I'm choosing you here. Or, all right, Lord, it's hard to love this person, but I'm choosing to love you in them. Then when God asks us if we want to spend eternity with him, it's an obvious yes, because we've said yes the entire time.
0: Yeah, I think we want to really move away from the notion of a final offer. Because I think there's this idea that we can somehow live a life of saying no to God and get one last chance Mm -hmm. after death. But that's not it. God reveals to us what we've said because he's been asking us, do you want me or something other than me every day of our lives? And so at some point we die and have sort of locked in our decision. We've lived a life of yes or a life of no to God. And so I think a great way of understanding this is found in Matthew 6 in verses 19 to 21 is where your treasure is there your heart will be also. So we can't lay up our treasures in hell. (laughs) We can't lay up our our treasure in something fleeting like worldly pleasure and uh, the things of the world that rot and rust away and then claim that our real treasure is God. No, you've had an entire life to show where you put your treasure and you'll follow your treasure. Mm -hmm. If your treasure is God in heaven, you'll follow your treasure to heaven. If your treasure is Financial success or worldly glory. You'll follow that into oblivion Mm -hmm. There's there's not some third route. And so I think we need to get our our thinking about judgment uh, Very clear because I think this is something that that we often think about judgment just as a thing that happens at the end of our life but really This gets back to what I hinted at earlier. There's a third sense in which we can talk about the coming of Christ Judgment and the coming of Christ should be something daily so there's a homily in which St. Bernard of Clairvaux says, We know that there are three comings of the Lord. In the first coming, he was seen on earth dwelling among men. Christmas. We're getting ready for mm-hmm. that. He himself testifies that they saw him and hated him. In the final coming, all flesh will see the salvation of our God. And they will look on him whom they have pierced. That's the last judgment. We've been talking about that. Yep. But then he says the intermediate coming is a hidden one. In it, only the elect see the Lord within their own selves, and they are saved. In his first coming, our Lord came in our flesh and in our weakness. In this middle coming, he comes in spirit and in power. In the final coming, he will be seen in glory and majesty. In case someone should think that what we say about this middle coming is sheer invention, listen to what our Lord himself says. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, And we will come to him. Keep God's word in this way. Let it enter into your very being. Let it take possession of your desires and your whole way of life. Feed on goodness, and your soul will delight in its richness. Remember to eat your bread, or your heart will wither away. Fill your soul with richness and strength. Because this coming lies between the other two, it is like a road on which we travel from the first coming to the last. In the first, Christ was our redemption. In the last, who will appear as our life. In this middle coming, he is our rest and consolation. I think that's beautiful. I want to just flag that. Mm-hmm. That's a tremendous way of understanding it. But I want to read a little more from this homily. I think it's beautiful. If you keep the word of God in this way, it will also keep you. The Son with the Father will come to you. The great prophet who will build the new Jerusalem will come, the one who makes all things new. This coming will fulfill what is written. As we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, we shall also bear the likeness of the heavenly man. Just as Adam's sin spread through all mankind and took hold of all, so Christ, who created and redeemed all, will glorify all once he takes possession of all. In other words, Christ Wants to take possession of you, of your soul, of your entire life today, right now. And you get to say yes or no to that. But you don't get to say no your whole life and then get disappointed when you don't get to spend eternity with the one you told every day you didn't want to spend eternity with. Mm -hmm. That's the way the last judgment works. It isn't you've hurt his feelings, so he's not going to be your friend anymore. It's You decided you didn't want to spend eternity with Christ. And we know you decided that because at every opportunity you had to live the life of the kingdom of God. You chose instead to live the life of the kingdom of man. You chose instead to live in the favor of fleeting things, of passing things, of things that rot in the earth. And so you've gone to join those things in separation from God, that you wanted to be separated from him. That's the message. And, of course, we're going to talk much more about all of that Mm -hmm. next week when we talk about hell. But just understand that the judgment isn't, oh, you hurt God's feelings, so he's going to kick you out of his party. No, it's, you decided to leave the party.
1: I love how, too, this emphasizes that the the things we focus on Advent are evergreen. Like, if you pardon the, like, intended Christmas tree pun. Like... This isn't something that we pack away and forget about come December 24th because it's Christmas and that season and that liturgical season is done. No. Like, again, like we said in the beginning, this is something that we constantly are called to think on. This is something as a church that we're constantly called to prepare for. Um, And just as Advent is a season of preparation, it really, our whole lives are in Advent in preparation for that coming when we meet him, whether that's at the second coming or with his final judgment or with our own particular judgment at our own death.
0: And this is, I think, something that we need to be very specific about because this is one of the things Father Delp, the one who I quoted earlier, uh, talks a lot about that our lives should be Advent. This is what Bernard of Clairvaux is talking about, that this middle coming of Christ is an Advent. And so we should live that season. It's easy when we read the Christmas accounts When we read about that first Advent and that first Christmas, to be like, wow, the Jews had all of this time. They knew the Messiah was coming. There were all of these prophecies. And yet most people were caught very much off guard. Mm -hmm. And their lives didn't reflect it. And many of them saw him and hated him. We talk about how, you know, there was no room for him in the inn. And we pass judgment on the innkeeper. Oh, yeah. And yet we look at our own life and think, oh, okay. Okay. Did I make room for him today? Or am I just trying to kick him to the staple? Am I saying, well, here's the leftover bit that I've got. So you can't have the best part, but maybe I'll give you a little bit of a manger in the back. Is that how we're treating Christ? In other words, we have even more prophecies than the first century Jews had. We have just as sure a knowledge that Christ is coming again, or alternatively, that we will go to him in death. Are we preparing for that? So let's
1: get into the nitty gritty of that preparation, especially during this Advent season, as we prepare for his first coming to celebrate his coming as a little baby. What are things we can do to prepare?
0: Yeah. So I think that preparing for death, as grim as that might sound, uh, really is a big way to do it. Now, because this is Advent, we want to focus on the three major tools of Advent. Uh, Prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. But underneath all of it, I want to be very clear, this is really about how to prepare your entire life Mm -hmm. to meet Jesus. So as you said, this is evergreen. We shouldn't just pack this away with the decorations once the Christmas season's over or once the Advent season's over. Thomas Kempis, An Imitation of Christ, has this beautiful bit, part of which is quoted in the Catechism. He says, very soon your life here will end. Consider then what may be in store for you elsewhere. Today we live, tomorrow we die and are quickly forgotten. Oh, the dullness and hardness of a heart which looks only to the present, instead of preparing for that which is to come. Therefore, in every deed, in every thought, act as though you were to die this very day. If you had a good conscience, you would not fear death very much. It is better to avoid sin than to fear death. And here's the critical line. This is the part that's quoted in the Catechism. If you are not prepared today, how will you be prepared tomorrow? Tomorrow is an uncertain day. How do you know you will have a tomorrow? Then he concludes the thought by saying, blessed is he who keeps the moment of death ever before his eyes and prepares for it every day. So if you're not ready for Christ's coming, if you're not ready for Christmas, for death, for the last judgment, today... Why do you think you're going to be ready for it tomorrow? Mm-hmm. Because you don't even know if you're going to have a tomorrow.
1: So I was at mass this past weekend and Father's homily just reflected this so beautifully. We talked about prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. We normally think of these as Lenten things, but I think Advent is just this beautiful miniature Lent. Like it's a little lighter on us. It's not as long. Um, so the gospel this this past weekend was from Luke 21. I'm just, I'll oh, note that this is actually, actually sure.
0: two weeks ago I was <laughs> right. listening on Monday. Top we're recording <laughs> in the middle of the week prior. You're <laughs> hearing us from the past.
1: Tap further back into your memory and remember two Sundays back when we heard from Luke 21. And so there's little passages of this gospel that when we heard it, it may have, we may have thought like, we are getting gypped. This is supposed to be a Christmas hom- like homily. We are supposed to be prepping for Advent. And instead, we're hearing stuff about the end times. We're hearing from the book of Revelations. And with the proper understanding of Advent, that makes sense now because this is an Advent that we're preparing for his final coming or when we, we come to meet him. But really, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving is tied into Luke 21. So for prayer, Christ tells us to be vigilant at all times and pray that you have the strength to escape the tribulations that are imminent and to stand before the son of man. So prayer, conversation with God, listening to him is an important aspect of what we should be doing to prepare, not only for Advent, not only for this liturgical season that we're in, but for the fact that Christ is coming again. Fasting. Christ says, beware that your hearts do not become drowsy from carousing and drunkenness, and from the anxieties of daily life, that that day catches you by surprise like a trap. You know, you think about when you maybe had, have had a glass of wine too much and everything's kind of fuzzy and you're a little bit slower to react and you're not as alert. And the things of this world can do that same thing to us when we when we get wrapped up in the things of this world, when we're a little bit drowsy, when we take a little bit longer to become alert to Christ's movement in our interior life. So I think in Advent, it's particularly beautiful to give up things that are keeping you asleep from the coming of Christ, first as a baby and then at the end of our lives. And then finally, for almsgiving, Christ saying to his disciples, but when these signs begin to happen, stand erect and raise your head because your redemption is at hand. And we think about how hard it is to stand erect, to stand up and alert when we are loaded down with burdens, whether that's worldly things or things that we've kept on our soul that we need to take to confession. But really, Advent offers this beautiful chance for us to give these to Christ, to surrender these over to him so that we can stand up straight and that we can anticipate his coming.
0: Yeah. So anyone who's interested in that, that's Luke 21. Uh, verses 25 to 28, and then 34 to 36. Mm -hmm. And again, that was now the first Sunday of Advent is when we heard that gospel. I think it's a beautiful reflection on it. There are a lot of other places in scripture where Jesus talks about the importance of prayer, the importance of fasting, and the importance of almsgiving. But those are the three best weapons in your arsenal. That, you know, he's constantly telling us, be alert, watch, and some variation of that throughout Advent. That's the theme of the Mm -hmm. whole season is this hopeful expectation, this watchfulness. And so you get these passages, both about his coming at Christmas and his coming in glory at the end of time, because we should be living a life of hopeful, expectant watchfulness. And of course, that brings us to the last line of the Nicene Creed, which I think is a good place to end where we began. I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit.
1: As it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be. world that end. Amen. In
0: the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
1: The Catholic Podcast is an initiative
0: of the Holy Family School of Faith Institute.
1: To find out more, or to see how you can contribute to our mission, check out www.schooloffaith.org